1: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of new books in historical fiction. Today I'm speaking with Michelle Cox, the author of A Girl Like You and its sequel, A Ring of Truth. Chicago, under prohibition, is a difficult place to be the eldest daughter of an impoverished family with a dead father and an unhappy mother. Henrietta von Harman does her best to keep her seven brothers and sisters in clothes and food, which means that she's been working any job she can find since she left school at 13. When we meet her in January 1935, she's pushing drinks and keeping score at Poor Pete's, a cheap corner bar. Henrietta stole another look at her compact before she snapped it shut and hurried out from behind the bar. The building around the edge was worn from overuse, but Henrietta didn't mind. It still did its job, and anyway, it had been a gift from one of the regulars in lieu of a tip, an old-timer whose wife had died several years back. It was obvious that the compact had been hers. But Henrietta had accepted it gratefully, gently squeezing the old man's hand in payment when he had offered it, milky-eyed and shaking, happy that someone seemed to want it at last. She weaved her way gingerly now through the tables where the crowd, mostly men, sat at low, battered tables throwing dice. The next round was starting, and as the house-twenty-six girl, she was supposed to not only keep score but to encourage drinks as the night wore on and inhibitions lowered." Who needs a refill before the next round starts, she called out. Several men at the back table put up a thick calloused finger to indicate they were ready for another. Henrietta pulling out a tiny pencil from behind her ear and scribbling down their orders in a small notebook she kept in the front pocket of the worn faded blue dress she always wore to work. And now, please join me in welcoming Michelle Cox. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So you have a BA in English Literature. You live in the Chicago area and you maintain not one but two blogs. Uh, It seems completely natural that you would end up writing a mystery series set in 1930s Chicago, but how did that come about?
0: Well, um, that's a long story. Um, we have lots let's, of time. let just say, you're right, yeah, just what you wanted to hear. I'll just condense it and say I did write this other novel um, before the series. And, you know, it was one of those big gargantuan things. It's about 240,000 words. And um, I'm sure you can guess that it, it didn't go anywhere. I couldn't even get an agent to read it. So, you know, I shopped this thing around for about a year before I decided, you know, that it was time to to put it in the proverbial drawer and start over. So, um, you know, I, I decided to to start something completely new, and like I wanted to prove to the industry, like they care, um, that I could write something marketable, that something that would get picked up in, by an agent, and something that was shorter, snappier, sexier, that kind of thing. Um, so I remember that at this point, I, I had no knowledge of the publishing industry. So I just, you know, I thought, well, what do people like to read? Mystery seems like a good idea. I liked mystery as a kid. I liked historical fiction. So I decided to sort of, you know, put those together. And um, I needed just a little kernel of an idea, though, to get me started. So I, I used to work in a nursing home. About 30 years ago, and um, I collected so many stories <laughs> from that experience. So, just a quick side note: if there's any writers out there listening, if you're ever short of ideas, just you know, go to a nursing home and hang out for a couple of weeks because you'll, you know, there's hundreds of stories there. So, actually, the whole character of Henrietta is actually based on a real woman. That I met in the nursing home, who um, just had this fantastic life. So I took, um, you know, some of the elements from that real story, and then, you know, created a murder and the, the aloof handsome detective, and and then it went from there.
1: That's great. So, what made you decide to start writing fiction in the first place?
0: You know, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> You know, I you know I was a as you said I had a B B.A. In, in literature and I worked for a while in a nursing home as a social worker, which doesn't connect. But then I, um, you know, then I got married and had kids and blah blah blah, and you know, just got you know sidetracked. I always kind of wanted to write a novel. I always wanted you know to challenge myself to do that. And then you know my kids started having you know problems in school, and I was really overcommitted in the community and you know I was part of all these volunteer groups I'm like you know what am I doing I my kids need me so I quit everything across the board to like help them but it didn't really take that long to get them you know back on track and then I had this huge glut of time so I'm like you know maybe this is the time when you've you've sort of cleared your slate that you should you know try this challenge to see if you can write a novel and it really was a challenge i really didn't think about getting it published or anything like that 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 came later
1: and that's a really interesting story so you do you keep up the blogs regularly on the side? the one of them discusses publishing and then the other is uh, forgotten local <laughs> residents of chicago which is really an interesting
0: topic yeah you know i i don't do both of them anymore it just got to be you know too much i still do the the novel notes because those are all based on the, that those experiences in the nursing home, so I just pick you know somebody's story, and you know those are pretty easy to write, and I think it's kind of cool because the that blog has its own like following now, which are, is separate from I think from the the people that follow the books. So that's kind of neat. I get people that write to me saying, hey, when are you going to return this, you know, blog into a book? And I'm like, wow, that's kind of, (laughs) that's a neat concept. I mean, maybe someday, but, um, you know, when I have time, I don't know when that would be. But um, the other blog, um, I was trying, I don't know if it was some kind of therapy (laughs) to, to get through you know, publishing the first book, Um, but I I, I was trying to appeal to a broader audience than that sort of little niche group that the um, novel notes appealed to, and so I thought, well, how about a writing blog, but, um, you know, there's thousands of writing blogs out there, what could I possibly add to, you know, the conversation, so I thought, well, how about a spoof, so it's kind of what that one was. It's like a spoof on um, what it's like once you sign the contract for you know the book because you feel like, oh, I've made it, I've arrived. And you realize that you know, you're know really just beginning that giant climb up a mountain. So it, that blog was all about that first year. And it, it, it was popular and it had a nice little following too, but it was just too much.
1: No, I can imagine. I mean, I update my blog once a week, and I'm pretty good about doing it. But you know, there's many a week that I just look at it and I think, "Oh my God, Friday's coming!" <laughs> oh
0: God. I know. It's like this <laughs> moment of dread. But, oh my but, God. but it's
1: interesting what you say about people saying about uh, you should make a book out of your blog because you know, with we all have like the two hundred forty thousand word manuscript in the drawer, right? Um,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But um, one of the really horrifying things about publishing is is that, you know, because agents and publishers are really looking for people who already have an audience, that's actually quite a common thing now is for them to to look for people who have blogs and say, well, why don't you turn this into a book? And here we all are, you know, with our 243rd Like, here,
0: how about this instead? Yeah, no, I know it. So
1: as you mentioned, you're, oh, actually, before I get to this next one, I, like a couple of other authors I um, have interviewed, you published with She Writes Press, which is a kind of new publishing model, and, uh, model. Excuse me, publishing model in itself. Can you tell us a bit about it?
0: Well, sure. Um, she writes, like you said, it's kind of a new model on the horizon. Um, it's a hybrid press. It's all for only for women, um, and I don't know it. If everybody, there seems to be a little bit of confusion about what a hybrid is. It's different than hybrid author, just to make it you know more confusing. Um, but what what it means to publish with She Writes is that you pay an upfront fee, and that includes your cover, your interior design, some light editing, your proofing, um, managing your metadata. And here's the key, really, is that you're you're traditionally distributed through Ingram Publishing Services, which is different than Ingram Spark. And as the author, I retain all creative control. So, and they really stand by that. So, you know, they have an editor who goes through and says, you know, I think you should do this or this. And, you know, you you really have um, a lot of control in that process. You have a control over the cover the title. I mean, they they will put in suggestions, but you don't have to, you know, um, follow it if you don't want to. And I retain all of my rights. So I retain all of the audio, the film, the foreign, and I make a bigger percentage of the profit. So for me, it's just it's a, it's a really neat um, model. And I just signed the contract for my third book with them. So, you know, I'm pretty happy. It's um it's a really great company. I mean, it's such a great group of women to work with. They're all very encouraging and nurturing and we help promote each other. And, um, there's so much advice there. It's, it's really a collaborative group, which I wasn't really expecting, which I think from what I've heard is kind of unique in the publishing uh, world. And, um, You know, the publisher, Brooke Warner, she's really, uh, I would say, a trailblazer in the industry. Um, I think we're going to see a rise in hybrids as time goes on because, you know, we fit really nicely between the big five, which, you know, are a little bit crumbling, I think, into themselves right now because they're they're unable to adjust quickly to, you know, the markets. And um, on the other end is the self-pub. So, you know, we're a nice um, sort of middle ground.
1: Yes, and it's curated as well, right? I mean, I, you pay a fee up front, but they don't accept everybody who applies. You have to pass. No,
0: them. yeah, I think they accept like five percent. So mm-hmm. they're 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 getting way more submissions now, as they because they're they're pretty young press. I mean, I think they're four or five years old. But mm-hmm. so, so now they are, you know, getting bombarded with submissions. But you know, they're still very uh, selective.
1: So uh, so let's talk about uh, the books. As you mentioned, uh, Henrietta von Harman is your main character. And the how did you describe him? The, the aloof detective is Clive Howard. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're very different personalities, although they're a very charming couple. Um, oh. And uh, so tell us first about Henrietta. You said that she's based on someone you knew in a, a nursing home. That's a really interesting connection.
0: Yeah, I mean, um she the real person, the real woman, um she would follow me around and she was 80 at that point and she would say to me in this like little old lady voice that, you know, once upon a time I had a man stopping body and a personality to go with it. I'm like, "Wow." That's fantastic who says that. So, um she would tell me all about her her life. I mean, she had the she was this beautiful woman. Um she had all these bizarre risque jobs during the depression. Um so the whole lots of the story, lots of the little tidbits, you know, I tried to bring in like all of the jobs that Henrietta has in the book. Those are real jobs that this woman had like taxi dancer and Curler girl and Dutch girl at the world fair all of all of those are are real, so that's fascinating. The, yeah, yeah, there's so much, I mean, and you know probably because we won't you know get to this at some point, but I will just say that, um I think the most bizarre um, part of the story that's true is um Lucy and the lesbian gang at the Marlowe. <laughs> <Really? laughs> Yeah, that wasn't me just, like, trying to be trendy. No, that really happened. And it was weird listening to this old woman talk about these lesbian parties that she would go to after the shows. And I'm like, wow, what was that like? You know, really fascinated. And she would just sort of poo-poo me saying, oh, they were so boring. (laughs) Boring? Why? And, And she said, because all they did is sit around and make out. (laughs) <laughs> wow, this has got to go in a book someday. So here you go.
1: Absolutely. So, so Henrietta her herself has had a kind of difficult time uh, before we even meet her and when she's at Poor Pete's. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just the beginning. Can you tell us about her, her background a bit?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, before the, the the book even opens, I'm not spoiling anything, her father kills himself because it's the Great Depression and he loses his job. So he uh, commits suicide. And Henrietta is the oldest. Her mother is in a sort of a depressed, angry state most of the time. So a lot of the burden of of making the money and and taking care of them falls onto her. So she has to step in and be the quote, mother hen to her siblings um, a lot. Um, So at, at heart, she's even though she's very beautiful and, and and attractive she's actually a very pure virtuous person and even though she's seen a lot of the seedier um side of life but she's she's trying to maintain her her virtue um you know despite all of these risque jobs that seem to to make her way to her
1: and she's very young i mean she's barely out of her teens right i mean she's not even out of her teens she's 17 18 Romania.
0: yeah she's yeah eighteen mm-hmm. when she um when she's you know taking this on, but you know even if you just look at you know some of the the real stories that I write about in the blog these these people really were i mean it's an anomaly if any of them graduated from high school, so most of these people that I'm writing about um you know left school in eighth grade and they were out in the world making their way.
1: Right, and she's been out in the world since she was 13, basically. Right, yeah. Uh, one of the fun things about the book is is all these jobs I didn't even know existed. So we'll get to the tax dancers <laughs> in a minute. But what is a 26 girl, which is the job that she's holding when, she's, uh, when we first meet her?
0: Yeah, and that was one of the jobs that the woman in the nursing home told me about, and I had never heard of it either. So I did some research on that, and apparently 26 was a dice game that was played, I think exclusively in Chicago. Um, it was played in um, bars, taverns. Sometimes I guess you could you could find a game um, of 26 in the back of a cigar store. But basically, I think what it is is you would throw 10 dice 13 times and you would try to get a perfect score of 26. And if you did, then you got a free drink on the house. And they had 26 girls hired to, you know, uh, they were supposed to go around and keep score, which they did. But their real purpose was to push drinks. Right. And so
1: this is so Henrietta at 18 is, is pushing drinks on these guys in bars. Which, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in the middle
0: of prohibition. <laughs> which... <laughs> right. Well, it had just ended at this point. So mm-hmm. this was all new world. All right. So yeah. I was
1: wrong about that. So um, so Henrietta does other jobs, uh, including Curl a Girl, which you mentioned. Um, and one <laughs> of them leads her to befriend Polly, uh, who in turn lures Henrietta away from poor Pete's uh, into a job as a taxi dancer. So what is a taxi dancer?
0: Well, a taxi dancer is a woman who was employed by the big dance halls of the day, like the Aragon in Chicago. And um, she would dance with men for ten cents a dance. So sometimes these girls were called dime dance girls. Um, and this this profession lasted pretty much until World War II, and then it sort of was on its way out. But for a while, it was a you know a common thing.
1: It's interesting because I think there were also hotels and so on that hired men to dance with the the women, um, not necessarily in the same way, but, you know, it, it was, if I'm thinking of Agatha Christie novels and things like that, or even the, ah. yeah, I think there's, I've seen yeah. them in movies as well, these guys who were hired to dance with the women. Yeah, kind
0: of like the escort, yeah, exactly, right. I think. Yeah, but somehow I feel like they were, you know, more respectable or something. Well, of course, they were men. (laughs) Exactly, right.
1: (laughs) They were probably getting at least 25 cents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So, um, so taxi dancing is, I mean, a 26 girl is probably on the edge of what Henrietta's Mm -hmm. family can support. And taxi dancing is definitely beyond the realm of what they consider to be appropriate, even though... You know They're the ones who are kind of pushing her into doing whatever she can do to make a buck because there are eight of them and most of them are too young to work. So she has to keep her new position secret from them, um, which is indicative in some ways about her relationship with them and especially her relationship with her mother and her next-in-line sister, Elsie. So can you talk a little bit about her family and um, not only why she can't tell them but what it means to her that she can't share this with them and how she feels about them that kind of thing you know character more than plot
0: sure um well she, taxi you know, like i said taxi dancing isn't really you know considered a respectable job It it's pretty much one step away from prostitution and it actually did sometimes lead to that um so only runaways or Girls that came up from the country looking, you know, for a job in the city during the Depression, really desperate girls, those were the ones that would usually take that kind of a job. And Henrietta hides this from her mother because they have, you know, as you sort of uh, implied, they have a very, how would you call it, very difficult relationship for many, many reasons, um, which future books in the series help explain but briefly it you know ma is one of those really crabby unhappy people in life that you can never seem to please and um you can sort of see why i mean she's living in poverty her husband's killed she has eight kids to take care of she's probably clinically depressed but doesn't know it um, at that time, um, she's very stubborn and proud. So, naturally, you know, she, she relies on the oldest child, which is Henrietta, to, you know, to help out. But this is complicated because Henrietta is this beautiful, gorgeous kind of creature, and Ma is, you know, the exact opposite. So, even as a young woman, it, it, the story sort of implies that Ma was not really, you know, very attractive. And I think there's even one point in the book where you know, Ma thinks to herself that Henrietta is really more her husband's child than hers and she she doesn't really know what to do with Henrietta, who, you know, is kind of headstrong in her own way. So she spends a lot of time lecturing Henrietta about in suspecting that she's this loose woman even though Henrietta's been fired so many times for you know slapping a manager for trying to feel her up, and then you know, and then Ma gets mad at her for losing her job, so Henrietta can never, never seem to win. So it's one of those situations that really don't have a you know a great solution. No,
1: and of course it's, um,
0: oh, I mean,
1: sexual harassment at work is still a problem, but it was much more of a problem for women in the 1930s because attitudes were much more. Casual towards it, and it was really kind of accepted in lots of places.
0: Oh, for sure, and that—that's actually one of the details that was true. Is that this woman told me that you know, even though it was a depression, she never had a a problem getting a job. I think because she was so beautiful, that she could always get a job, but she could never hold one because she would never sacrifice her virtues. So she was always being felt up, and she would always push back, and she always got fired. So that was that's a real part of this woman's you know story that she told me. So I thought that would be neat to you know put that in there because it was so prevalent.
1: Right? No, exactly. I mean, even in the '60s, it was still you know people would pick a uh, secretary by her legs and that kind of thing. Mm, Um, Yeah. (laughs) um, Now they only do it in Russia. Or at least they only fess up to doing it in Russia. <laughs> That's <right that> <laughs> so, um, so, and Elsie is, um, as I mentioned, she's the next sister in line, and she's quite different in personality from Henrietta, which I think mm. I have the impression that kind of heightens the conflict. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on between Henrietta and her mother, including how the mother and father got together. But there's also... I. There's a simplistic contrast,
0: I think, because Elsie is so much more biddable. Right, exactly. And Elsie looks like, you know, Ma more and she's she's the the one that's so eager to please and not create waves and and yeah, you know, especially as the books go on, we, we you know, we learn that, you know, Elsie is a real person too and um you know, she doesn't get a lot of affection or attention really from anybody. I mean, she just, she gets it, you know, she's sort of Ma's, not partner in crime, I wouldn't say it that way, but, um, you know, she she's emotionally there for Ma whenever Ma needs her to be, whereas Henrietta is not. Henrietta provides the money, but she, you know, she finds it harder to sympathize. So, and then, you know, you have the, the whole relationship between Elsie and Henrietta where, you know, Elsie's kind of looking to Henrietta for something and um, Henrietta has so much going on already on her plate that, that that's not always, you know, at the forefront for her. She, it's, all of that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course. And of course, actually, I mean, we haven't talked about what these jobs that she does are, but she's pretty much working all the time and particularly she's working at night. She has to work really late um, yes. as a taxi driver, a taxi, I kept saying taxi driver the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> taxi <He> dancer. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they both work late at
0: night. <laughs> right, right. Both work for tips.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, and then when she goes to the Marlow, which we'll talk about briefly in a minute, um, of course that's another late night job. So she's not around. I mean she's literally not there because she's either making money curling hair or making money um, you know, cleaning up for for the for Mr. Hennessy who owns poor Pete's or at this other job. So it would be very difficult for her to do all of that. She's she's essentially been cast as, as the man in the ho- of the house in the traditional in this traditional family even though she's a young girl so
0: yes exactly yeah Yeah. so it's hard for her and you know Elsie tries to step up to the plate but you know she's also younger and she's she doesn't have that sort of independent um you know streak that Henrietta does I mean Henrietta can make it work because you know she has to and um Elsie is a much more shy, introverted character, so you know it it makes sense that she's sort of stuck at home, trying to pick up the pieces. Where while Henry is off, you know, doing whatever.
1: And it's really hard to imagine Elsie, even in a pinch, doing most of these things.
0: No, right, exactly.
1: So, which brings me, before we get to Clive, uh, to Stan, mm-hmm. who is, uh, he's, he's like the comic relief of the story, and he's really quite charming in his own way, but um, he is, um, he's not a family member, but he would like to be, let's put it that way. So, tell us a little bit about him.
0: Well, thanks for thinking he's funny, because <laughs> he's supposed to be. He is, it, it, you, you said it perfectly, he really is supposed to be the comic relief, and um Kind of almost like a, a Dickensian side character who ends up, you know, having a role in in the conclusion of the plot somehow. That's that's supposed to be, you know, stand function. Um, and he really is. He he was also based on not one person um, in real life, but apparently. Okay, so back to this woman in nursing home again. She um she really did have all these weird late night jobs, and because the neighborhood boys knew that she was a quote, good girl. Um, there was a, this little gang of them that would wait for her to get off the L or the bus very late at night and they would follow her at a distance until she made it home safely. And I thought, wow, that's, that's such a neat detail. I would love to put that in the book, but I just didn't think I could write this big gang <laughs> into the novel. That was just, you know, going to be too much. So I, amalgamated all of them into one character of Stanley. So yeah, of course, you know, in the book, he, he's in love with Henrietta and um, he, his sense of wanting to protect her sometimes um, puts her in more danger than she would have been. And of course he's suspicious of, um, you know, of Clive. He doesn't know what to make of him. And, you know, Henrietta's uh, not interested in him at all. And she's, you know constantly trying to push him towards elsie so you know i i hope that um you know he does make up some comic scenes because you know that that's kind of his, his function
1: oh he absolutely does and we will see in the second book although we are we won't discuss in the, in the interview his uh his interactions with elsie take some interesting twists let's put it
0: that way yeah <laughs> and and even more so in the third book oh it's, i'm it's, glad it's, to hear that yeah <laughs>
1: So so as you mentioned, this is a murder mystery, and we're uh, a long way from the murder, but it does come about because, um, you know, Henrietta actually likes being a taxi dancer in many ways, um, even though she's afraid of what her family's going to say if they find out, and she's got to deal with guys who, you know, don't know where to draw the line and all of this kind of thing. Um, But um, the the issue for her is that one night her boss is murdered. And and actually, she's already met Clive, as I recall, um, mm-hmm. because, but because he has a reason for being there. Um, but, uh, of course, when the boss is murdered there, she discovers that he's not just some guy that she danced with, whom she took a liking to, but he's actually a detective with the Chicago police. Um, and so what else can you tell us about Clive based on the information that you give in set up to the first book. I mean, I, I don't expect you to tell us his whole life, but the, the stuff that you want <laughs> readers to know.
0: Well, yeah, it's kind of hard. Cause like you said, I don't want to you know, ruin too much. Um, it, well, let's just say he's this aloof character. Um, he clearly wants to solve the case. I mean, that, that seems to be his MO. Um, we find out that he's been in the first world war and he still carries a lot of that around with him. Um, And his, his only, I guess, defense against all of that sort of angst is, is he has this idea that, you know, being a detective, he can, it's his way of trying to make the world or the city a more just sort of civilized place. But, um, sort of like, you know, he's trying to make the sacrifice that all of those men made in the war worth something. So he's definitely, you know, innocent and yet Henrietta sees him as somehow um, different than most of the men she's encountered. And she can't quite figure that out. So she's she's attracted to how safe he makes her feel, even in, when they're in these dangerous situations. But um, as the reader, you have to wonder, is, is that real attraction or is Clive sort of becoming more of a father figure to her?
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly did wonder about that, especially because she lost her own father at such an early age, and there is quite a difference in age between them, although mm-hmm. they clearly, they do connect at a, at a real emotional level. Um, but it is an interesting question, and it's it's kind of, you know, if you're going to write a series, it's kind of nice to have something like that sort of hanging there in reader's mind to figure it out.
0: Yes, right. Um,
1: so... We probably don't want to go too much farther into the first book, but as a result of her association with Clyde, Henrietta ends up helping him with his investigation at this place called the Marlowe, which you mentioned, um, which puts her in a very dangerous position, and we're not going to explain exactly how that happened. But tell us what the Marlowe is and what she's expected to do there and how that builds on where she has been uh, up to now.
0: Well, she, um, Clive convinces her to, um, he, he suspects that, you know, the the killer, whoever killed, um, her boss at the the taxi dancer place, um, may be linked to this burlesque theater called the Marlowe. And there were, you know, lots of burlesque theaters, um, around and, um, the, (laughs) the woman, that I interviewed, she, she really did work at one of these places as in a Charette. and, um, they had very strict rules. So, so a lot of what I've written about the Marlow is actually pretty true. So there was like a no touching policy that was, you know, enforced sometimes, but at other times, you know, it was really complicated. And, um, she, she, so she's 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 on a case there for clive and she's posing as as an usherette and then it it kind of goes from there what she i don't want to reveal too much but um what she's considers uh doing just to to figure it out to help him
1: okay so let's move on to then to the second book in the series um which is called a ring of truth and um since there is a series, I think it's probably not too enormous of a spoiler to let people know that Clive and Henrietta continue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Got it.
1: <laughs> and uh, at the beginning of A Ring of Truth, they are engaged. And yeah. um, it's paradoxically, or maybe not because of her personality, Henrietta's mother is actually not too thrilled about this. Um and she has now learned about the taxi driver did it again. The taxi <laughs> <I> give you <laughs> business, and she's not happy about that either. Um, but somehow Clyde talks her around, and then he takes Henrietta to meet his parents, and that turns out to be a big surprise.
0: Yes, yeah, it's a surprise because he he drives her to this you know big mansion in Winneka, which is you know the northern suburbs. So he's, there's this, you know, big mansion on the lake and um, says, oh, by the way, uh, this is his parents' estate. So now she's utterly terrified, like she was in the first book, only um, now for a different reason.
1: So this part fascinates me. Um as you implied, there's quite a big age difference between Clive and Henrietta. So they've already got stuff to, to work past. But, <laughs> but now they have a really big socioeconomic difference as well. Um, and what made you decide to pick that particular hurdle for them to deal with in the second
0: book? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I guess I'm always looking for a way to keep the drama going. Um, to throw in little twists or unex- you know, the plot, something unexpected in the plot. Um, otherwise, I feel like the series is going to get boring. Um, and I didn't want to write this typical series where it's the same stock characters with their idiosyncrasies and each time the only thing that changes in the book is, is the mystery that they're going to solve. I mean, those, those series are fine and I read a lot of them, but I didn't want to write that. So I wanted the characters and the overarching, you know, plot lines to keep developing in each book. So so that's almost its own kind of mystery for the reader as well, like what's gonna to happen to Stan and Elsie in the next book, like for example. But you know, specifically to answer the question, I mean, why why make Clive a part of the wealthy North Shore? Um I guess because I, I knew I would have fun writing that. I mean, I, I'm a huge Anglophile, and besides reading the classics for like 30 years of my life and watching everything that's ever come out of BBC or um, PBS, um, I, I I couldn't get enough of it. So, I, you know, I loved Downton Abbey, Pride and Prejudice, all of those, and I, I thought that would appeal to a lot of people, too. And I realized that after I wrote the first book... Um, that, I, like I said, when I first started this out, I wasn't envisioning that this was going to be a series. It was just sort of a, it was going to be a one-off to just, just to see if I could appeal to an agent. And, um, but because when I first started writing it, my, my feelings were still, I was still involved with the characters in my, you know, gargantuan unpublished thing. But then about halfway through this one, I realized that, you know, I started to fall in love with Henry and then Clive too. And I'm like, oh, gee, you know, I don't want it to end. So why don't I make this into a series? And then I can, you know, be with them for a long time. But I didn't really want to write a long series about all these grisly crimes and their seedy life in the city. So I thought, okay, um, (laughs) how can I turn this a little bit? I want the upper crust of the North shore. So it, it's perfect. Cause I still have mine, and Elsie and the kids back in the city. Um, so I can hop back and forth. Um, and this is another way for Henrietta to shine, um, or not. She's faced with all these, you know, a new set of hurdles.
1: I do think, I mean, I actually, in in many ways, I I read a lot of mysteries too, but the problem with most of them is that they do tend to be very flat in terms of character because they're all focused on, you know, who did the, who done it. And and so I actually found those parts of the book even more interesting than the solutions to the mysteries, which, you know, they were interesting in themselves. I don't want to give the wrong impression, but it was the interaction among the characters that I, I particularly liked
0: about these books. Thanks. Yeah, that's what I was going for, so thank you. <laughs>
1: Great. So, also, um, the it's not too surprising that given the vast difference um, in their social standing, uh, Clive's parents are not too enthralled by the, the mystery, <laughs> uh, by the, the engagement either. So, on the one hand, you've got um, Henrietta's mother who is uh upset well mostly because she thinks she's going to lose henrietta's paychecks but also it turns out <laughs> she has her own history which means that um this has emotional resonances for her that she is not really willing or able to deal with but then you also have uh, Klein's parents who are looking at this girl from uh you know a, a, a tiny apartment in in uh the not-so-good part of Chicago and who was suddenly presented to them as their daughter-in-law. And and then she's left with them for, for training <laughs> as a socialite. <laughs> and poor Henrietta, not surprisingly, finds herself more comfortable with the members of the household who actually work for a
0: living. <laughs> Which gets into yes.
1: more trouble.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, she's got, it's hard for her because um, she's used to working every day. I mean, and very hard. So um, Antonia, you know, Clive's mother's suggestion that she take the morning to write letters, you know, to her correspondence, that's very strange to her. And she's lonely. I mean, she's coming from a three-room apartment where she lives with her mom and her seven siblings or various jobs where she's dealing with the public all day or night to this huge mansion where there's really no one around except for the servants. So naturally, she's drawn to them, and she wants something real to do. So she tries to help them with their chores, and that sometimes gets her in trouble or both of them in trouble, and she finds herself Kind of getting drawn into their world and their intrigues um, because she doesn't really have anything else to do. So it, you know that lends itself to its own set of problems. It's hard to know for her which world she really belongs in.
1: Yes, I mean it's it's interesting because there is such a um, there really is a, cl- a culture clash. You know, I mean the the idea that that she would have correspondence. In that way, <laughs> I'm sure she's thinking, what, "What the places? You know, I need to talk to Ma. Just go talk to her, and then I run
0: away." Right. Exactly right.
1: <laughs> she does get a very nice wardrobe out of the deal. Um, yes, right. Uh, so that's helpful, but still, yeah. even that is. I mean, you know, she's a young girl. She loves having great clothes, but that—that's that. that she's she's been in such a different place. And um, that even that is kind of like wow, you know, where's you know, she she ends up giving pieces of things to you know people that she knows <laughs> is, that she shouldn't be giving,
0: <laughs> right? Which gets her in trouble too, right?
1: Of course. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to talk about Helen as well, or would you rather leave that? Um, then the, that's the mystery part of it. Is is this elderly Scots lady that she that? Um, Henrietta runs into while well, she's avoiding writing to her correspondents,
0: <laughs> looking for something to do. Right. Yeah, no, yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, H- Helen is the this elderly woman who um, was once the cook for the estate, and she's old now, and she's kind of been put out to pasture at a this old cottage on the property. So you know, occasionally she's there to help with big parties, but no one really takes her very seriously, and she seems like she's a bit touched in the head, um, is what they, they say about her. Um, though when Henrietta meets her, she she doesn't really seem that way, and she's she's just very upset about this missing ring. Um, so Henrietta feels very, you know, with compassion for this woman's distress, but she's not really sure what to do about it. So, um, especially since Helen keeps saying that her her daughter Daphne you know, is going to show up at any moment and help. So um, Henrietta, you know, doesn't really know what to make of this.
1: But she does sort of see it at some point as a way to connect with Clive, who's off back in the city doing his own investigation.
0: Yeah, right. So, yeah, exactly. So Helen, you know, tells her the story of the ring and, you know, how it relates to her history. And, you know, Henrietta sees how, you know, really valuable this item is to her. Um. And then, you know, of course, Helen suspects one of the gardeners and, you know, she, she says she's seen him creeping about and blah, blah, blah. So the, the Helen subplot has a lot of uses. You know, first of all, it, it gives us some valuable insight about Clive's backstory and it gives Henrietta something to do, um, you know, a cause to champion. You know, she's fighting for this misunderstood underdog, which is oddly similar to herself, Um so you've got Henrietta Mesh now in this drama, and which, which Clive and the, the upper class really have no time for. So this becomes a, a sticking point between Clive and Henrietta for more than one reason. And then you have the whole Helen and Daphne story, and that gives us yet another mother-daughter story to look at about love and loss. And that becomes very poignant to Henrietta, too, for, you know, for obvious reasons. So, so
1: let's leave the stories now because we want. Um, I think we've sketched out the the main themes and the main uh, characters and and the important parts of it. And and so now, uh, what all of these things cause complications, which people should find <laughs> the books and read. Um, Yay! Yeah. So. Um, what kinds of research do you do? I know you interviewed this elderly lady, but you must have done quite a bit of work on finding out what Chicago was like in 1935. It's changed a lot.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I this, this question always comes up and it always makes me nervous because I'm not a big, to tell you the truth, um, hardcore researcher. I mean, I actually did a lot of work for that, you know, once again, the unpublished book that was set in the 40s. So I, I really did a lot on that and um some of it i just sort of borrowed um for this series but i know in talking with a lot of um, authors who write historical fiction their big love is the research so they love researching most of them as much as the writing and for me it's it's really the opposite it's all about getting the story out so i I'm writing the story, and then if I come upon something like, "What kind of car would would Clive's father have driven?" I don't stop to research that. I just put in, you know, big X's in, you know, as I'm typing, and I know that later, when I'm done, I have to go back to the, all the big X's and fill in the blank, because I just don't want to interrupt the flow while I'm writing. But some some authors, you know, really really enjoy that part. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I've talked to, I've been talking to people now for five years and there seems to be a real range because everybody's trying to balance the same things, basically. I mean, you mm. you want to have the the information, the detail that readers expect, that, that take readers into the story because otherwise, you know, a story could be taking place anywhere. And yet you don't want to have so much detail and so much research that the story gets lost. Um yep. And so some people are like you. They they just, um, you know, they they write the story and they either they stop and they research that thing um, mm-hmm. or they just keep going. And then in the end, they go back and figure out what it would be. Um, for me, I'm a historian, so the research is it first and foremost, but I've done most of it. I've spent my whole career doing it. And so I'm just drawing on uh-huh. it. And so when I come to the story, I think about. What would be happening right then? Um, and it can be very hard right. to find out. But I, but, <laughs> but I also, my attitude is, you know, you just pique people's interest. And if they really want to find out more, there's the entire Internet out there. <laughs> let's Ex- let's yeah, them exactly. go research it, right? Um, right. So I think both of them work as long as, because if you do all that research, it's it's very important to have, it's very useful. But then you have to put it all away so that it doesn't, you know, overwhelm what's happening between the main characters in your story.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's so fascinating to me when I, I hear about authors who, you know, read five books on, you know, medieval weaponry or something, and then only, you know, a paragraph of that gets actually put into the story. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't have that much time. I can't do that. But, you know, to each his own, I guess.
1: So what would you like readers to take away from A Girl Like You and A Ring of Truth?
0: Wow. it's hmm. a good question. Um, you know, I think it would be just that it's not a straight-up mystery series, if you haven't already figured that out. Um, I think it's really a cross-genre type of series. So, um, you know, I think that's confirmed, if, if I can say this, By it's won a lot of awards. And... I'm baffled by the fact that sometimes it it wins for mystery and sometimes it wins for romance and then sometimes it, it wins for historical fiction. So I think that's kind of indicative of, of what it is. Um I I'm always worried that somebody who picks this series up thinking it's gonna be a hard boiled mystery series is, you know, gonna come away disappointed. But um so I'm always trying to you know broadcast that it's not hard-boiled mystery it's it's a little of everything and I think that you know somebody like me who likes all of those elements in the book are, are going to be really pleased with it so at least I'm hoping
1: that's great so what are you, are you well you're obviously you've just delivered the third book in the series so um I don't know if you want to tell us anything about that or if you are already on to something else um what, what are what are your plans at the moment
0: well, I'm right um book 3 just went into production. Um and I've just finished the first draft of book 4. So, um I'm going to be, you know, working a lot on edits for that, but um I don't really have an end date or an end number for the series. Um I guess I'm just going to keep writing them until I get sick of it or, you know, people stop buying the books, one or the other. Oh, Maybe great. I'll work on a standalone. <laughs>
1: Maybe you'll take the
0: 240,000 words and break it down. Right, exactly. You know, the problem, though, is now I've stolen so many characters from that book, I don't think it can Uh, (laughs) survive on its own. I'd really have to rework it.
1: Right. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's been fun. I really appreciate it. Good. Thank you for listening to our podcast.
1: Once again, I am CP Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Michelle Cox about her two Chicago mysteries, A Girl Like You and A Ring of Truth. You can find out more about her at www.michellecoxauthor.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at ubookshistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cpleslie.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.